Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. I'm Eamon Murtagh. And I am Deb Grant. And this week, because it is actually still hot from the time when we actually recorded how hot we were, we're going to talk about how hot it's been because it has been hot. And after all of our chat about the Prague cruise a couple of months ago here on the podcast, we're going to talk to the wonderful Jeannie Finlay about the film she made about a goth cruise. I'm looking forward to, yeah. uh, to, to hearing about my people and what my people yeah, like she, to do when they go on their holiday. absolutely lovely, I have to say. Absolutely lovely talking to her. It's a great little interview. And speaking of great interviews, we have an indie legend on the show this week. Mickey Berenyi from Lush is talking to us and she's got a new book out and she talks to us all about her phonographic memories, her time on 4AD, her riding the wave of Britpop and going to America and all that stuff. And she is a lovely person to chat to, so I know you're going to enjoy that. I really enjoyed talking to Mickey. What a legend. What an icon of indie music. I was a little bit starstruck, actually, as I often am on this yeah, podcast. She's too cool for school. Way Just talking to you, cool. Eamon, I get starstruck. So shall we do this thing? <laughs> well, I have that effect on some people. Anyway, let, let's pod. We can't be stars unless we do the pods. That's let's true. Pod. Let's do this thing. murder it's that time what goes around well i've decided to do something quick and topical because what with this show coming out monthly by the time it actually comes out it won't be topical anymore and it certainly won't won't have arrived very quickly but it is blazing hot today it is you know we're we're looking at 40 degrees in london and uh people are going to melt you know, there's there's going to be there's going to be absolute sunblock frenzy everywhere we go and i was just thinking hot music Mm. What is your go-to hot music? Where, where, what, what says heat summer vibes for you? I'll tell you. Um, I mean, there's plenty. You know, there's so much yeah. music that sort of comes to life. I was actually uh, played a Mavis John track this morning on Six Music, and I was saying it's a bit like getting your cabana wear out from the loft and being like, I love this stuff. <laughs> I wear this more often. Um, it's just because it sounds so good in the in the heat. But I would say my number one. Uh, summery sunshine record is Captain Beefheart's Tropical Hot Dog Night. It's about two, two flamingos in a fruit fight. There's nothing more summery than that. <laughs> I haven't heard that. That sounds amazing. Oh, it's so good. It's really, it's really like, oh, it's just really juicy, you know. Mm. Um, so that's my the, uh, Captain Beefheart for summertime. You can't beat it. That's that's no, <laughs> Music that, that of was that was a very Deb Grant left field choice. I love it very much. <laughs> I do like to be awkward and contrary. I, I, I tweeted the other day um, that it was hot enough now for Sketches of Spain by Miles Davis. Mm. And Marcus Brigstock came on came online immediately and went, oh, yes, good choice. And then we sort of had a, a sort of uh, separated by, by Miles, but a, a, a simultaneous audio experience. And both of us came back at the end going... That's amazing, wasn't it? Because <laughs> so, it really does. It's one of those albums that, like the the room begins to shimmer with heat halfway mm. through it. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's so, well, not even halfway through it. It's like the intro, the first two minutes are just like. It's too hot for me to give a fuck. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Past the ice. Yeah, it, it, it's just one of those. It's an amazing, amazing record. And of course, we could have reggae, of course. There's always yeah. reggae, but 
wrong Tom. Doesn't wrong Tom object. Yeah, he object. <laughs> he calls effect. it the, the liltification of reggae music. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so maybe best not mention that. Yeah. I mean, I do like a bit of reggae, but it's hot. But reggae is for, it's like a dog. It's not just for Christmas. It's a whole year round. Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. absolutely. So, I mean, my ones that always get me. I, I kind of like Latin music, but the horns get a bit busy. Mm. Kind of, you know, can can get just a little bit too hectic for me. And the same goes with jazz, but. I tell you, the right jazz in a very hot day is amazing. Um, I once went, I went to New York once, and as I got into the cab, the the door shut and the air conditioning came on, and um, John Coltrane Giant Step started, Mm. and I was just like, oh, it's blazing hot. I'm in New York, going over a bridge. This is what it's all about. I think any time when you get into a cab and someone has jazz on, you feel like you're having a moment in your life. Yeah. You know, yeah. and expect, like, yeah, it's just like being the protagonist in a film of your own life. You're just like, yeah, this is happening <laughs> to me right now. And you're right. There is something about being driven about where it's, I guess you've got that extra person there that isn't in you. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, but, but. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> I don't know which cab service you use, but I'm going to look that shit up. Yeah, I love that. I love, I love the way music can do that. You know, it, it can. It can take a hot day and it can make you enjoy that unbearable heat, you know, and that that is a that's just one of the many forms of magic that music casts upon us. And God bless it for it. Dear viewers, feel free to write in and tell us what is good for a very hot day and maybe we'll make a playlist or something like that. DJ Deb Grant of Six Music and Jazz FM fame, tell us what goes around. Well, I've been a little bit absent recently, as in I've been outside of the country. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But like this time, I haven't just been stuck in my house trying to work on a million things, going between my house and Manchester. Uh, I've been all over the place. I was in Budapest. I had an amazing trip. Um, I got talking to uh, a record store owner who greatly underestimated me. Um, yeah. It was an amazing <laughs> shop, but he was li- I was like, they had all this Hungarian music there, like this weird, like, uh, like crazy 70s, unlistenable synth music and stuff, the kind of stuff I like. And yeah, uh, yeah. he was like, oh, you're just picking albums because you like the covers. I was like, mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't right. say that to me. That's, that's what you think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was quite funny because he was like, like uh, we got into a conversation 
And I was saying, no, I, I like this because it's got, it, this has Fred Katz on it and I like this because it's got this, this and this, you know. And he was like, oh, you really know what you're talking about. I was like, yeah. And he's like, are you, you work, are you a DJ or something? And I was like, yeah, I'm a radio presenter. And he was like, oh, for BBC. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> I do work for the fucking BBC. Um, now give me my, my Fred Katz record and shut <laughs> yeah, the fuck exactly. up. Should have gotten my fucking lanyard out. Anyway, so. When <laughs> oh, don't, don't get the lanyard. Out. you know things Just, are serious when they start whipping out the lanyard listen, yeah having that lanyard in my pocket makes me feel so powerful i can't, oh, I can't imagine i can't imagine the buzz of that it's like it's like the one true ring isn't it oh it really is especially because my lanyard gets you into the continuity suite which is like fort fucking knocks it has every like security allowance on my lanyard it's a it's a precious thing and then i went to switzerland for montreux jazz festival which was absolutely fucking glorious you know when you like so montreux jazz festival is like this legendary thing obviously we've all heard the live recordings need simone and marlena shaw and all of these it's it's almost like it's not real to me it's 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 one of those it's like a fillmore east thing there's a couple of those names that have had really famous albums attached to them where you know them you know them like they're your 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 kith and kin but you almost don't believe they're real and montreux jazz festival that is a name that just makes me think that only happened in black and white you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i felt the same and i definitely thought like there's no way i don't know what i'm i don't even really know what it is but there's no way that it can live up to my to this hype that i've built up in my own head about it it was amazing i mean first of all like it's on the shores of Lake Geneva, which doesn't like mm. Lake Geneva looks like a two dimensional zoom background. Like it does doesn't look like a real place. <laughs> it's insane. Like you know when you go to another country and you're like, why do I live in England? Switzerland is particularly, you know, everywhere looks like a postcard yeah. or the front of a Heidi novel. You yes. Know? The, yes. The, 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 the the green is a very green green because it's always matched with an incredibly azuri blue sky that's yeah. just. Yeah, I mean, and, and cows have bells and yeah. the chocolate's good yes. and there's cuckoo clocks and, ah, oh, man, I'm so jealous. And if you want to buy a sandwich at the airport, it'll cost you £28. Learn that the hard I way. I was going to, because there was a little discussion I was a party to the other day where someone was saying, can you can you party at the Montreux Jazz Festival? There's definitely an air of exclusivity about it. You know, and a, a lot of, it was mainly, mainly people speaking French, but all the British people we saw there were definitely super posh. You know, very, yeah. very, very wealthy expats. Um, maybe that's why I liked it. <laughs> Aspirational. <laughs> I found my people. <laughs> yeah. Rich people. Buy me things. Buy me things. Of course. Rolex. Like, that's what I wanted I, all along. Where does the money come? Like, there's definitely something. Because we... Okay, so the festival, incredible. The sound. I mean, Claude Nobbs, the guy who founded it, was so pedantic about sound quality and stuff. Mm. You know, the acts were amazing. It was so chilled and civilized. The food was great. And it was one of those things where... There's just something going on everywhere. Every room had like a podcast being recorded or a jam session going on or, you know, all of this mm. stuff happening. The food is really good. But then we took a bus, we took a taxi, a car up to the um, up to the chalet where the archives are kept. Because again, Claude Nobbs made sure he recorded everything meticulously. So there's this incredible archive uh, in this chalet, which is also full of ephemera from Montrose gone past. So they have like a kimono that was gifted by Freddie Mercury, Miles Davis's <laughs> red trumpet. Like, oh, and, and it's not just like single items, you know, being displayed on a plinth. It's like stacked, stuff hanging really? everywhere. It's just 
it's an inc- it's like a sort of curated chaos and then like upstairs they have a cinema room where they have a sound system uh where they've replicated exactly the Stravinsky Hall which is the main uh venue at Montreux Jazz Festival um and so you're sitting in this small room and it sounds like you're in an auditorium they played uh footage of Prince playing when Doves Cry when he had been at the festival and it was just mm magnificent and they have like they have a fucking tech room where they're like this is where we're developing the holograms this is where we're developing the VR <laughs> this is where we're putting a piece of Miles or John Coltrane's music on a piece of DNA and seeing what it's what? just like where do you get your money I don't understand it's it was like being inside a fucking sci-fi film like it was yeah, I've got to rewind this back so they're putting music on DNA yes I don't know why I mean this is the, I, I, now I've just got this image of like some lab Rat just suddenly go. I got rhythm. I got rhythm. We got jazz rats everywhere, man. What are we gonna do? They're taking over the whole joint. What do they do? What do they want? They want cheese, man. They want cheese. Yeah, they're just throwing money at things. Well, okay. I'm I'm really jealous of your frankly exhausting sounding lifestyle. Why you're not jealous that... of my life? What? Why do I bother no, doing it then? I really. Well, I get to do two things at once. You know, you you, yeah, you can't true. listen to music passively, so yeah. I, I, that kind of rules out most of your life for me. Yeah. Um, but I am quite jealous of that. I would like to go to Montreux, and I, but I would like to go. Like when I lived in Manchester many years ago, um, Manchester is a wonderful city, and I, as you must be becoming aware now, having spent so much time there. But um, I went there as a, a very poor student. I think I was living on something like sixteen pounds a week, mm. and. Um, I loved it, and I, I just wanted to come back when I had money. And I think Montreux would be a bit like that, except for you'd have to magnify the sums a little bit. I'd love to go, but I think it must be quite depressing if you don't have a grand to burn every week, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, like I say, bit of a jolt paying that much at the Montreux Jazz Festival Cafe at the airport. But uh, I was going to say there must be some way to live there on a budget, but I don't think so. Yeah, I yeah. You just flash your lanyard, mate. You'll get yeah. it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I demand sandwiches. Bring me cheese. <laughs> Listeners may remember that back in episode 7, Deb suggested, much to my horror, that I go on a progressive rock cruise to the Caribbean, and we then discussed genres that might be fun on a cruise ship, and one of our listeners, the mighty Howard Walker, wrote in to tell us about a documentary by Jeannie Finley called Goth Cruise. Well, being an ex-goth, of course I simply had to watch it, and it turned out to be a delightfully touching story that I think everyone should see, to be quite honest. Furthermore, I then discovered that Jeannie directed one of my favourite music documentaries of all time, Sound It Out, about the last record shop in Teesside. With a CD like that, she was perfect for what goes around, and we felt compelled to talk to Jeannie. And I'm delighted that she is here today to talk to us, so welcome to What Goes Around. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well, I guess the first thing is to congratulate you on the wonderful films you've made, especially those two that I mentioned, which I've watched again recently and really enjoyed immensely. You've made a lot of films now. It was seven, maybe nine now, is it? I'm just working on my ninth and tenth features at the moment. Subject matter is really interesting as well because, I mean, obviously a lot of it's very close to our hearts with music. You have Elvis impersonators and the last record shop in Teesside and goths. 
Uh, but we've also done things like uh, Game of Thrones and pantomimes and all, all manner of things, really. What is it that draws the subject to you? How do you decide what to make your films about? Oh, it's, it's quite difficult, you know, because I get pitched. Now that my films are more well-known, I get approached through my agent a lot with um, stories. I don't know, I've got to fall in love yeah, it's exactly like falling in love. There's that sort of um, little special something that makes you just feel possessed by a, a story. Sometimes you feel like you can see it fully formed in your head already. And sometimes you've just got lots of questions. So having a lot of questions is a good place to start. Well, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Goth Cruise, because that is the film that kind of brought us together, if you like. Um, we were talking about... Um, musical cruises basically because uh, our Deb was sent this uh, invitation to a progressive rock cruise now progressive rock is kind of my um, my kryptonite so the idea <laughs> horrified me greatly but then when we were told about goth cruise I mean where on earth did you find out about such a thing uh, it's quite interesting um, I I was a goth this is you know my name's Jeannie Finlay and I was a goth me too don't worry <laughs> but, but I stopped being a goth after about two years I remember like we did um I went to a massive comprehensive in um Teesside and they did wear what you want day for comic relief I think you had to pay a pound mm -hmm. and I went in wearing a fringe goth skirt and it was all Huawei lampshade <laughs> for, for like two years after that anyway I sort of I went to art college and I discovered colour and I and I sort of I shared my goth um mm you know, trappings. Yeah. But I went to the wedding of an old um, old friend from schools. Her sister got married. And when we were at school, her sister was sort of like the Susie Sue that we all looked up to. Mm. And what was interesting was that she was still a goth. And she walked down the aisle, a vision in black. And it just set me on this sort of thought process of I see quite a lot of old goths older goths what is it about goth that really speaks to people and makes them just sort of go yeah this is this is it this is the um subculture for me and so I started to develop a film called goth for life or goth till I die goth mm. till I die and I came home from work and my husband sort of said to me I've got it the goth cruise and he'd found the goth cruise and when i started researching it there was two goth cruises and they were sort of at war <laughs> now <laughs> if this was a bit further into my career as a filmmaker because it was the second film i ever made i would have probably made a film about the warring goth cruises but um as it was i i contacted one of them and it had a lot of bands on board and it was very restricted like I would only be allowed to do film in here and I don't know I, you need to have freedom to be able to find the film rather than write it all out and the other goth cruise the guy who organized it Bob just said I'll put it to the group and if they say yes you can come along so I did and we I pitched it to um I took it to a production company Tag Lily Films in London pitched it to them and we pitched it to IFC in the States. And it was pretty much a two-word pitch. And they were just like, we love it. And so I think three months after having the idea, I was on a plane to America to film a pilot with a load of the goths. Mm -hmm. It was unreal how quick it sort of turned around. And, it, and people uh, snapped it up as well. I mean, the, the figures were great for the streaming, weren't they? 
It was unbelievable. They released it on Thanksgiving um, on IFC and they were launching IFC's on-demand um, service. And it was the the biggest title they'd ever had on on the show. I think they marketed it as spend Thanksgiving with the gods instead of your family. And um, it was just a captive audience. And it was sort of just at the beginning of when people were like, live tweeting yeah. stuff. So I remember like seeing it go out because it's a bit weird you know it's a bit weird when your films go out in another country and they feel it feels very detached but this was literally like a a tidal wave of tweets of people um tweeting along with the film i I thought there's a very interesting moment in the the film where one of the 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 goths (laughs) to refer to them as a generalization one of the goths one of the people in black um mentions that being a goth in america is a much more serious commitment, whereas in England you're sort of seen as an oddity, really. You know, there's a little, a little bit of um, hassle, but in America, because I think maybe because of all the Christian sort of leanings that a lot of American states have, to go around like that immediately you're tied in with devil worship and all these other things, and it can be quite a problem, I imagine. I think there's just much more moral panic um, yeah. around. I think particularly after. Th- some of the shootings in the trench coat mafia so columbine i think triggered a lot of suspicion of the unknown and people who dressed quote unquote strangely yeah and i think that there's a much tighter sort of corporate culture the way that we described it um amongst ourselves was that in the uk i think that goths are seen as cuddly and in the us cuds are seen as goths are seen as scary um and there's much less sort of embracing of eccentricities or individualism in terms of dress. And, you know, I've just I've been making a film out in the States and part of me would say, oh, that's not apparent anymore. But I, th- I think it is more than ever, <laughs> depending on where you go in in the United States. Yeah, it's a very big place, isn't it? And, uh, mm. the, the culture changes quite a lot from the, the coast and the north to the south and the middle. Absolutely. When I first read the title of the movie it was goth cruise and i imagined a cruise entirely made of goths and then as the as the sort of film went on i began to think well do you know if it was an entire ship full of goths maybe it wouldn't have worked at all because there's something about them signaling themselves as different that brings them together but if there isn't something to be different to like if if all 2,000 people on the cruise were goths. I think it would be a very different film to the fact that there was like 150, 300 of the 2,000. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that... I mean, it's worth setting it up for your listeners. So the film is about... I think there's 2,500 mainly pensioners from New Jersey and the the cruise ship sails from New Jersey to the Bahamas. But yeah, it's 2,500 norms, as the goths refer to... The little old ladies from New Jersey and then I think it's 150 goths and I spend time with I think it's five five of them and I just follow their story and it's more rather than being a sort of in the moment this is everything that happens on a goth cruise it's more like um, a, a layered portrait of these people and the cruise is the opportunity to get to know them I mean as soon as I sort of saw the the cruise I just sort of thought this is just so contradictory. Can you be your most goth on a neon-lit cruise ship to the Caribbean? What do you do in the sun? Do you wear um, <laughs> s- 
uh, I don't know, a black bikini. And what I discovered is a lot of them do wear black yeah. bikinis and, and goth block. Yeah, goth block. Because they want to keep their skin person. very pale. Because I burned about five minutes flat, so uh, I'm going to get some goth block on me today. Yeah, yeah same same here. I've just, I, I'm also a fellow ginger, and I've been out in the sun today for about two minutes. I'm like, oh, it's too much. I think one of the things that does come across is just, uh, uh, it's, it's very tender. Do you know? I think the way that you, leave so much room for them to talk and it, it. I think sometimes you can tell in a documentary that people are feeling a bit hurried but you never get that in your film and I think when they open up and they start talking about their lives it's a very sweet um, I kind of felt like really really lucky to be allowed to see how these people had these hidden feelings that they that, you know that they could only express amongst their true friends it's a it's a very sweet thing. Do you keep in contact with any of the people you film? Oh, thanks for for saying that. It's really important to me that the films I make are told with a, a tenderness. I want people to recognise themselves for good and for bad. It doesn't mean you know I've I've <laughs> I've made films with some right rotters <laughs> in the past, but you know I think that people are complex, and it's important to sort of reflect their complexity on screen. Um, yeah, I mean, if you... I don't really use Facebook that much anymore, but if you go through my friends list, it's pretty much anyone who's ever been in one of my films. Um, and during the pandemic, we did two reunions, um, one for Sound It Out. Josie Long hosted a reunion of most of the people that were in Sound It Out. And we did a, a watch-along on um, Goth Day, with all of the goths. So so that was really nice. And sometimes I'll meet up with them. I was touring Orion uh, around the south and I went to North Carolina and saw Lobster. Mm-hmm. So I went out with Lobster really? and Heath came to the world premiere of Seahorse in New York and he came to Orion. So, you know, I, keep, I do keep in touch with, with people for a... A long time. They get. I think you get in each other's bones yeah. after a while. I, I think you can. You can feel that watching it because they obviously trust you. you know, like it, it's a really. It's plain that um, some of them are very guarded people in their normal life. Yeah, absolutely. It's a secret. Yeah. Their goth identity is confidential, so they're very, very trusting. And I take. I take that really seriously. And. Um, it's what I tr- I do masterclasses with young filmmakers and I try and instill this idea of you have to try and make your little tiny corner of the film industry a better place by be you just have to be decent mm. and it sound it's easy to make the t- the easy cut it's much harder to reflect the nuances and um, complexities of of human nature I think. It's much a hard, It's a much harder thing to do. Um, well, now listen. What goes around? We describe ourselves as a music podcast that is made for music lovers rather than music makers, because we're not really about hero worship. We do have some lovely and fantastically talented people as guests on the show, but we're not really about the star. We're more about the fans. And um, your first film that I watched, Sound It Out, really is such a lovely film. For the listeners, it was about the very last record shop 
in Teesside at a time when record shops really were quite frankly dying on their ass, and it was it was like the last of a breed of shops that were so important for so many generations. You tell us a little bit about Sound It Out and how you came to make it. I'd been spending a lot of time in in the northeast where I grew up. Um, my mum was very ill; she'd got um, breast cancer, and um, I was sort of going up and spending time with her while she was having chemotherapy. And it was really hot. It was really horrible. <laughs> uh, I went to school with Tom Butchart, who runs Sound It Out Records. And I used to go in and visit Tom in the shop. And it was like a haven for me. It was like the best place to go in Teesside. And I sort of looked around and realised that it was a haven for every single person that went in there. And um, I just started filming. And after I'd been filming for about a year, I sort of, I was like, right, Tom, I'm ready. I'm going to... I'm going to get to know some of the customers that come in the shop and I'm going to get them to tell me about their record collections. And Tom sort of said, you know, it's a hard area. We sell hard music. So the thing that kept him going through the lean times was Makina, yes. which is this very, very tinny... I so want to talk about Makina. <laughs> in the film, there are two budding DJs who have a little techno shed. I, now, listen, I'm a raver. I, I've done all kinds of techno and drum bass noise. Never heard of Makina in my life. It's a sort of dance music that only... I think it's popular in Spain and then also in... Teesside and it's sort of like it's like happy hardcore but it sounds more they it sounds more like children's nursery rhymes played at high speed mm. and then you have these MCs who rap super fast over the top of it I went to see um, Mikey and John Boy uh, they lived in a estate next to the Tylery so I went and filmed them at their house and they were just doing MCing in their bedroom it was tight ty- it was a tiny, tiny single bed bedroom, just emceeing. And it was sort of amazing. Yeah. Amazing. The energy and the, and the passion they had for it. There's a, there's a wonderful part when uh, one of them starts describing the effect he's looking for when he's mixing. And there's, there's a moment where, when the beats are hitting perfectly on time and they're like duffing out of the speaker and then, the look on his face is like, it's it, it, very similar to somebody who's had a religious experience. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's also, you know, there's the lads who've got, a, who run a radio station out of the shed in their garden. So um, there's two brothers that, that run a, a dance music uh, radio station. Um, and one of the lads there, he's got a black eye and he's telling me about the beats bouncing off each other. Yeah. You know, and you sort of feel like the, music that they listen to is so much more than it's so much more than music i mean music you know it helps plots our lives it's a soundtrack to our existence but also it can express your emotion it can express a feeling and if you're making music and you're lost in it it can be a real outlet for others you know if, if you can't get a job but you're DJing, and like he says, oh, this keeps me off the streets. This this keeps me going. Yeah. And um, it was, yeah, I, f- I found it very, spending time with them, I found very moving. Yes, I think, I think you're very right there. Um, at that time, I mean, now things are looking much, much rosier. Now, I mean, but these provincial shops, I mean, they were dying out almost completely. I mean, when you caught the end of this way, did you think it was going to be the end of record shops? Um, I mean, there was a moment when I thought, 
oh dear lord, I'm making a film about my friend's shop dying. I think there was a couple of days, particularly like a rainy day. A rainy day in Stockton is, you know, can be a bit grey. And there was one day no one came in the shop at all, at all. Um, and then another day when Tom just took a fiver and, you know, with all the best will in the world, that's not enough to sustain a business. But he sort of, he just kept on battling through. It still holds a very special place in my heart, not only because I worked in a record shop that was very similar to it, but also because, you know, again, this is why we run the podcast. I, I love to see the love that music fans have for, for their interests, you know, and, and your film captures it so nicely and so, and again, quietly, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you. Well, that's, yeah, that's that's all that I ever wanted wanted from it, really. So, I mean, a lot of your films seem to have a, a musical lilt to them. I mean, is music a big part of your life, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I never wanted to make a film about music, but I think, I feel like music is just... You know, it's like the words through Brighton Rock. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed talking to you and I definitely recommend all of the films that I've seen have been brilliant and I'm sure all the rest will be just as good. I'm going to work my way through. Where can our listeners find your films and watch them? Everything I've ever made is on my website, which is geniefinlay.com. But they're, they're also available on iTunes and Prime and on the BFI player. Well, we shall stick the links in our show notes uh, and hopefully we'll have a few people discover your brilliant films that way. What are you working on now? What's, the, what's up next for you? Um, I'm just making a couple of films at the moment that um, are confidential for now, but they're going to okay. be big. Um, one of them, I think, is going to make a big splash. <laughs> and um, and one of them I'm just starting, um, but it's another film based in the northeast. So I've just finished one in America and then, yeah, I've gone back to the northeast to make, make the one after that. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you come up with next. And thank you ever so much for talking to us today. It's been lovely. You're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Today we're joined by an indie legend whose music proved as ethereal and inventive as it was catchy and intelligent. Mickey Berenyi is the founder member of the iconic 4AD band Lush. She's a singer and songwriter famed for mixing together incredible soundscapes and catchy melodies. Their sound evolved from the art house of shoegaze to the stadium-sized bravado of Britpop, but their aesthetic was always much more interesting than any label they were saddled with. Mickey's now written a book about her life and times in Lush and beyond, and it's a lot more than the standard name-dropping reminiscence. It speaks honestly and openly about the singer's sometimes tragic events and emotions that shaped her life. And speaking to someone who had the 23 envelope poster set on their bedroom wall growing up, I personally am delighted to welcome to the show Mickey Bereni. Hello. That's Hello. a lovely introduction. That's probably the best I've ever had. So well done. Hey. I'm basking in that. Oh, mate, you're basking. Honestly, every, every week we do this show and I'm like, oh, did I really say that? Oh, no. <laughs> But that no, well, I, I'm a, I'm a, I was a big fan. I have to say, I I bought that that poster set, and you you adorned my walls for many years. Although I suppose it wasn't really a picture of you, but um, you know. Yes, exactly. 
I always thought was that a strange thing when you signed someone like 4AD because normally the sort of the posters and all that sort of thing was very much, you know, the band normally get into that themselves and start start pushing that direction. But with 4AD, because they had the incredible artwork of Vaughan Oliver, um, were you just presented with what your records would look like or, you know, did you have a hand I mean, in, in <clears throat> the design? I mean, kind of. I know that because we signed at the same time as Pale Saints, and mm. I know that for their first for Sight of You, they actually did the. They already had artwork that they wanted to use. I mean, they were quite sort of organised about how they wanted all their stuff to be presented and their sound and all of that. Whereas we were like just a bit all over the place. So it wasn't <laughs> like every every band kind of went with the B twenty three option. Mm. But for us, it was like, oh, my God, obviously you'd go with it because they were amazing. And I think also because right from the start, we had a lot of, you know, focus on its two girls and blah, 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 that, Mm. you know, we were we were really happy that it didn't focus on that. That always felt like a trap. If we were on a major label, we'd be mel- like kind of, I don't know, Mel and Kim, or we'd be like, <laughs> well, the, the focus would all be on how we looked and our mm. kind of, you know, femaleness and, and looks would be used to market the records, which you didn't want at all, you know? Yeah. So we were really happy that, that, you know, we weren't on the covers. We were, you know what I mean? It was, that was yeah, a bonus. Yeah. And they were so beautiful as well. I mean, the, the, yeah. the whole... The whole aesthetic of 4AD at the time was, I mean, it was just like art. It was it was lovely. It was beautiful, beautiful ideas. And it kind of, without their, because a lot of the 4AD bands didn't fall into a scene as such, but they all had a character which kind of, in a way, was sort of pulled together by that artwork. You know, it gave the label a mystique and a feel, and you kind of knew roughly which direction you were heading when you, when you looked at those records. Well, I mean, Ivo took it very very seriously you know he saw v23 as an integral part of the label so every record was a sort of artifact you know and that's Mm. how he viewed it so when we had our first eps when we had like the mini album scar and then mad love sweetness and light you know and then when they got kind of mushed together to make gala for the american Mm. and japanese market like ivo hated it you know he was like no these were meant to be like separate things they kind of you know it's the sleeve it's the design it's their separate entities and themselves and I kind of get what he means so there was a lot of you know that was it wasn't just a kind of oh we've got a nice sleeve designer and that's a little extra burnishing thing it was absolutely integral to the ethos of the label which sounds I know it sounds really pretentious but (laughs) it was I kind of liked that element to it you know how hard was it to find a label that fit you? Because, you know, you know, I was a child of the 90s and Britpop was massively important to me. And the women of Britpop really stuck out. And even when you could see they were trying to avoid being sort of put forward as a bit of a novelty, you could see there was a, a small element of that. Was it difficult to find a label who weren't going to use you in that way? Oh, my God, that sounds like we actually had some sort of plan (laughs) I mean literally when when we got approached there was like rough trade well first of all we had a load of major labels that kind of came to see us and then very quickly left (laughs) and then like 
so then Rough Trade and 4AD were both interested. And I was just like, bloody hell, like, seriously. <laughs> so because, for you know, Ivo was interested and, and Jeff Travis at Rough Trade did say, look, if Ivo's interested, I think you'll fit really well with that label. Mm. So we kind of just ended up on 4AD because they asked us. Yeah. We didn't mm. think like... You know, it's not like we turned down loads of labels. <laughs> no, we're literally the only people who, who kind of wanted us. I'm, all I'm saying is, is that once we were there, you know, we never thought of moving on from there. Yeah. It was just such a great fit, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and we felt quite protected by them, actually, against that, you know, what we felt might be a sort of easy exploitation. Major labels really did sort of sexualise and use mm. that for a lot of female artists that we just weren't really equipped to fight that and at yeah. 4AD it was just never came up yeah do you think if things had been different and one of the major labels had signed you it's something that you would you know it could have been a completely different a completely different path a different image for you guys I don't think we would have survived on a major mm. label I just don't think we were ever that kind of band and yeah. I think that's what made it quite difficult even being on Warners in America you know, there was a lot we were willing to do. We put in the graft, we did the tours, all of that. But there is a different ethos at a major label mm. where I think it just becomes all about having a hit. Mm. The quality of the record is almost irrelevant. Yeah. And mm. I don't think we were actually equipped to withstand that. So we needed a label that understood that from the outset and protected that. Um, shall we, Eamon, should we talk about the book? Well, I think what, I think uh, we definitely definitely need to speak about the book a little bit. And I mm. think um, you've tried to really tell your personal story rather than sort of a, a, a lot of uh, name-dropping quips about high times in Camden and, and you know, hanging out with uh, the, the other Britpop set. Because I, I don't know how, how true any of that really was for anyone who was involved in that Britpop thing. But I think you've tried to to really tell your emotional story. Can you tell us a little bit about, about I guess, the bravery or the moment you decided to to find that within you? Because it's never easy to, to really tell your story. I mean, it's possibly because I was approached to write the book rather than, you know, it wasn't something I started writing and then was looking for a publisher. Hmm. Um, I was a bit kind of, sort of oh really you want me to write that and you know something that just hadn't occurred to me <laughs> so once I'd had the offer it was like well if I'm gonna do this how do I want to do it and mm. I kind of I'm not a big reader of rock biographies mm. so I sort of bought a load and I read obviously I'd read Viv Albertines but I mm. read a load of like Tracy Thorns and mm. I think what really struck me was I really liked the early days um, of some of the others. I mean, Trace, what I loved about Tracy Thorne was that she has this real kind of dignity to her writing and the writing itself is really important. So for me, it was, I was, you know, I was, I set the bar very high by kind of looking mm. at her book and Viv's book and thinking it's about the telling of the tale and the kind of, insight and the wisdom of things not necessarily just the things that happened but how it felt and what it made you feel and and how it affected relationships and that's the bit that's more interesting to me rather than as you say you know oh yeah then we headlined this tour and you know amazing <laughs> stuff happened and we were hanging out with you know 
Rod Stewart or whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and then once I started writing it, I, I was going to the publisher going, I'm not being funny, but there's the, the childhood stuff is uh, like, I'm kind of getting really into it. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of fed back and said, well, it is actually really interesting. Normally we'd only recommend like two chapters, maybe three on childhood, mm-hmm. but it's actually yeah. quite an involving story. And so just go with it, which was really good because it's half the book. Yeah. And I just yeah. find that stuff more just more interesting you know like no, you why need to, I, I you find need to that find out where people come book. from so well once you kind of arrive there it, it is what it is but it's the journey to it that I think is more interesting yeah and then even when you're in it it's how you navigate through it rather than just the kind of stuff that the high times that happen yeah. and also people tend to lie a lot <laughs> you know they they do tend to big it up yeah yeah, understandably in fairness I read Grace Jones's autobiography (laughs) and I was reading through it and I was like this is 80% bullshit but I don't mind because it's great but I mean it's it's interesting that you use uh, Viv Albertine as an example because you know her books uh, and yours too I mean um, they're so personal and confessional like to the point where you really feel like um, you know, there's a confidence that they're putting in the, you know, that they're really confiding in the person who's who's reading it and really putting stuff out there that, you know, there might be certain people reading who aren't going to appreciate being written about. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like it really goes deep uh, into um, uh, into relationships with other people. And it's interesting to me that it hadn't occurred to you to write this book until someone approached you and then you really were willing to put it all out on the table did you think about did you think about the sort of vulnerable the vulnerable position that you were putting yourself in when you're writing it I mean I did I did think you know do do I really want to spill all this stuff Mm. but I just felt if I'm going to write a book if I'm going to spend all this time I can defend right the stuff that I've written because I actually that is what I think that Mm. is what I believe if I write a load of stuff about how amazing it all was and how Mm. talented I am (laughs) and how every minute of it was so fantastic I'm really going to struggle to defend that because it's not the bloody truth Mm. do you know what I mean Mm. so if you're going to I just felt if I'm actually going to bother writing this then I actually need to get across what it what it really felt like because I think that is infinitely more easy uh, or or interesting Mm. and satisfying than just putting out some sort of vapid kind of PR let's just sort of legendize my time and it's all bollocks I don't know do you know yeah yeah yeah. maybe I still sound like I'm completely (laughs) mad but and I, I know that it was difficult because like you say there are other people involved in that story and I do think you know I did have to tread quite carefully about what I could reveal, not just even legally, but just thinking about, you know, I get it, even for someone like Emma, you know, she's not making music now. It's not a comfortable thing for her to have Mm. all of that stuff discussed from 30 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. But, you know, in order to tell my story, I have to tell some of hers. And it's quite, it is quite tricky, you know. But I just, I guess it comes back to just thinking, well, if I'm not going to write this, then I might as well not bother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think most most fans would uh, feel the same way because you know the last thing you need is just a, a you know a long list of tour dates and a, and a few <laughs> emojis. What you, what you really want to know is what shaped the person who made the art. And uh, 
I know looking down your list, when we ask people onto the show, we often get, uh, you know, a little bit of confusion about exactly what we're after and sort of saying, you know, um, songs with a, with a memory attached to them and all that sort of thing. Three songs, you just have a chat about it. And then, you know, quite often they'll be stumping up at the last minute with two songs and trying to think of the third one. You brilliantly sent us like a list, which I would rather <laughs> like to make into a compilation album, if that's OK. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> There's some great music on there. Uh, but I, I love the way... You know, in your little, in your letter, you, said, you know, you talk about all of these different bands and talk about real memories and feelings that go with them. And I think um, uh, Simple Minds Premonition is your, your first choice. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to know, you know, how you first came across that and what it was that kind of captured your imagination. Because at that time... Simple Minds weren't the bloated behemoth that people kind of remember of Alive and Kicking and that. They were a very different band, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 the reason I picked that song is that I still have this really vivid memory of watching the old Grey Whistle Test. And, mm. um, and I think it was Annie Nightingale presenting. I think it was an actual retrospective thing. So I think it was kind of screened in 1982, but it was actually a clip from 1979. And it mm. was filmed in New York and it was just absolutely mesmerizing. I was just watching this thing th thinking, my God, you know, I kind of knew by then, I think the Simple Minds had sort of were edging towards like New Gold Dream when I was mm -hmm. watching it. Um, so I just didn't realize there was this whole other side to this band. And I think it was, you know, I didn't have older siblings. None of my friends I was at school with had older siblings. So our kind of adventure into music, we didn't have someone who knew, you know, had been through punk rock or who mm. kind of knew a lot about contemporary music. We were finding our own way, starting from the top 40, right? And then kind of digging further and like back and down into whatever branches spread out from that. So this was a kind of early moment of that, of like, oh my God, Simple Minds used to be a completely different band. Look at them, <laughs> that's insane. a real um i don't know like a dividing line in those days i think where because we'd come out of the end of the 70s and of course punk had disrupted a lot of stuff but then you had um 
a real, I guess you'd call it the birth of indie and all that sort of stuff work, but you had two sections of music, really. You know, there was there was mainstream and then there was this underground, much more experimental stuff. And if you decided to get off the mainstream bus and jump on the other one, you know, that could be quite a weird, lonely experience in itself because you can't really explain to your Duran Duran listening pals what it is about you know, an eight-minute version of Premonition by Simple Minds that takes you away or why the psychedelic furs have suddenly started speaking to you. I can remember finding these sort of bands and feeling like an alien, if that makes any sense. I mean, I know what you mean, but I I kind of think, like me and Emma and, and actually our whole group of friends, I mean, we were kind of teenage girls, so I didn't really veer off into things like the more obscure stuff and then completely mm. abandon pop music. I still thought mm. the Thompson Twins were great. And you know, yeah. I still went to see right Sandow <laughs> Ballet. You know? So it wasn't, you know, and even when me and Emma started going to gigs, I can remember people sort of having a go at us and saying, oh my God, why are you going to see the Sisters of Mercy when you're at a Men They Couldn't Hang gig or something or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, you know, they were quite factional times, but me and Emma were always at everything. I was like, well, I, I couldn't really distinguish. Why, why, if you like the Smiths, can you not go and see the Guana Bats? Why, if you like, yeah. you know, if you want to go and see the Cramps, why can't you also go and see Culture Club? Like, we were just kind of immersed in all of it and happy to go wherever, really. We didn't really have any snobbery about it. Mm. It was just yeah. all like extra new stuff to discover, which I think was actually, I think that was a really healthy attitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely. quite a contemporary really take on music. Like, I feel like that's what kids are like now. But like back then, it was like it was so important to uh, to attach yourself to a certain style or identity. I mean, were you guys dressing in a certain way? Were you expressing yourselves in other ways in terms of the eclectic music that you liked? Did you identify with any kind of youth uh, culture movement? I probably look, I think when we were about 14, both me and Emma looked very, very gothy. Mm. And Didn't I think we all? that Emma then, <laughs> well, yeah. All the best people I, did. I, <laughs> I think I kind of stuck to that look because it worked quite well for me, whereas Emma then went quite indie. Mm. Um, a couple of our mates were very anarcho-punk, so it was all mohawks and things. But it was, it didn't really matter. Like it didn't, to me, it didn't signal, oh, I've got like big black sort of spiky hair and kind of elaborate eye makeup. That means I'm only listening to Balam and the Angel and the Sisters of Mercy. Mm. It's like, well, no, I like the Higsons and I like, you know, any yeah, number of other sense. other kind of different kinds of bands. So mm. I didn't really uh, identify in such tribal way. Um, but lots of people around us did and yeah. some people gave us grief for it. But I just I didn't I didn't really care. <laughs> yeah. That's a really interesting and, attitude for because I think that normally comes from age. I think like at my age now, I can listen to pretty much anything. But certainly when I was at that age, and I'm only a few years, I think about the same age as you actually. Um, but at that time, I remember I felt very much so you were either on that bus or off that bus. So it's quite a mature way of looking at music to really accept everything. I, I didn't get that until I was older, I don't think. I mean, it's funny you say that because I think at the time it was seen as the opposite. You know, I when I was kind of, I had like boyfriends who 
you know, when I look back, I mean, I learned quite a lot. You know, when you go out with someone, you, you kind of learn about their musical taste. I have to say it usually works male to female. Men tend to mm. not listen as much to mm-hmm. what their girlfriends are into. <laughs> no um, surprise there. They're mentoring you, as it were. But, you know, I did mm. learn a lot from that. But I would have boyfriends who would kind of, you know, sneer and go, oh, my God, I can't believe you listen to them. Mm. And I just thought what it I just so it was seen as a bit immature. Mm. It was like, oh, my God, you need mm. to grow out of that. You can't you can't be listening to Echo and the Bunny Men. I mean, they're just like the doors revisited, like they're just rubbish. <laughs> and I'd be like, OK, you know what? You stick to your whatever niche pursuit you you're into you know i'll take leonard cohen thank you that's that was interesting (laughs) i'm gonna keep all the stuff i'm still into (laughs) who's laughing now eh? who's laughing now thinking about this kind of um the differences you find in music and the way that you can find something that is away from the norms that you know your second choice throwing muses and a she-wolf um, I mean, Throwing Muses, when they came along, they didn't really sound like anything at all. Um, and it must have been amazing for you because they were they were American and they would kind of uh, blew up very quickly. They had this incredibly strange sound. And then suddenly you found yourself in the 4AD office with them. Yeah, I mean, I think because 4AD, maybe we just didn't realise it at the time. You know, we'd signed to 4AD. They'd had kind of very different bands already like a lot of people just associated them with the cocktail twins mm. but you know there was the birthday party Bauhaus had been on them Exmal Deutschland who we really loved so there were quite a lot of different sorts of sounding bands that had already been on the label so the Pixies and Throwing Muses I didn't realize but it marked a real shift in the label at the time it mm. just felt like oh it's another exciting band on 4AD um I was sort of thinking about this, how America, like a lot of the kind of Britpop people sort of talk about how they were kind of making an alternative, like they hated grunge music, they hated American grunge music. And it was a kind of reaction to that. Whereas to me, hearing like the Muses and the Pixies and even earlier than that, you know, the Gun Club and the Cramps, I always thought Mm. of American music as like actually really exotic. Like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, really otherworldly. It didn't feel to me like, I mean, yes, obviously big American rock, like Foreigner or whatever, that was hmm. your kind of a bit, for me, dull American music. But these bands sounded like totally weird. And from this sort of, you know, weird, like strange little, I don't know, you know, the Pixies with that kind of slightly Hispanic element and the Muses where it's almost a sort of slightly, not bluesy, but kind of a bit hick kind of, you know, (laughs) like just really odd influences. And I think even as personalities, it was quite funny that the Pixies were, you know, they didn't feel like, they didn't really seem like rock stars. They were like kind of a bit like American tourists or something. <laughs> well, no, in a kind of like, oh, gee, hey, you know, this is great and kind of just right. quite laid back. Whereas the muses were like quite intense and cerebral and, you know, but everyone had their own kind of, I don't know, I just found them quite mm. exotic. And, and I think we kind of got quite friends with Tanya Donnelly, 
because our then manager was going out with her. So she came on a couple of trips with us and stuff. And she was just so lovely. So it felt like a bit of a family, I suppose. It's easy to forget as well that, you know, this is like the late 80s, really, isn't it? And uh, America, I mean, stupid thing to say, but it was a long way away then, America. America wasn't like it is now where it's two clicks and a mouse and you're you're live in Tucson or whatever. I can remember watching The Tube and they had a report from America of uh, new, new bands that are breaking through in L.A., and they'd sent the people over to America and it took them two weeks to film it and then they had to come back and edit it. So this up to the moment, as live as it could be report, was already like three and a half, four weeks old by the time it actually got onto the screen. And that kind of shows how far away America was at the time. It did seem like, I mean, first of all, it's massive, America. You know, one one side of it sounds very different to the other side, sounds very different to the middle of it. But also in those days, it was like, um, it really was an undertaking to get there. It was an undertaking to find what was happening there. And it, it, it took labels like 4AD to sort of um, inject their culture into ours. Do you know what I mean? I, I certainly wasn't aware. I think the first time I'd ever, re- apart from La Bamba, the first time I'd ever heard Spanish sung in a, in a pop song was on Pixies. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's the sort of nuances we never got. Did we? I mean, I think we, mm. we like as British people, you see a lot of kind of New York or I don't know, kind of American cop shows. So you kind of think yeah. everything <laughs> is like Starsky and Hutch or something. But yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to someone the other day and I said, like, I'm sorry, I know this sounds really racist. But at the time, I thought like Louisiana was like you know all banjo playing sort of weirdos like because I'd seen Deliverance and that was it I didn't know anything else or I thought or you know I'd seen you know something about lynchings in the south and just thought everyone was like massively racist and it was all KKK Mm. and it's not till you go there that you're like oh everyone's really friendly and it's fine like I'm not saying there aren't political difficulties but obviously when you're like you say, we'd only get like the kind of extreme report of a place mm. and none of the kind of granular detail. Were you learning, was your sort of naivety about that kind of stuff being cured by the fact that you were over there with the band? Because you were saying as well, um, you struggled with, with Warner in the States. What was that experience like of kind of discovering America through that prism? I mean... You know, we were very lucky again. We had a guy, Tim Carr, who had signed us to Warners and he, you know, was an A&R man in the true sense of the word that he really was there with us and for us and would come out on tour and would come over and help with the albums and, you know, give his enthusiasm and all that. So we did feel looked after. And there were a lot of very nice people who worked there when we first signed to the label. 
and we did feel looked after but and you know the other thing about America is that my mum did live there but she lived in LA and when I'd go over and see her she's quite well off Mm. it was just this little rich people's enclave really Mm. I didn't get to see much outside of that so actually going touring around the country and you know and also seeing it afresh through you know the others who hadn't been there the band and the crew was it just a completely different experience do you know I mean it'd probably be like someone coming over and saying oh yeah I've been to England and they've been on holiday in the Lake District but (laughs) they've never seen anything else you know and it it so it was a it was quite an eye opener actually to see that the rest of the country was you know very different mm-hmm. and you know i think that the experience of being on a major label i.e. warners at, at the beginning because we had those people um looking after us it was fine i mean it was a lot of work it's a huge country touring it takes just ages mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas, you know, you can tour Britain and, you know, you might do a little bit of press and radio, a few local things and a couple of fanzines. In America, it's like every single city has its own radio station, its own paper, its own college radio station. It's a whole thing. So it's pretty much nonstop. Mm -hmm. And, And some of that is fine. But, you know, they will set up like meet and greets with local record stores. And you Mm. have to go in for signings and you have to make extra appearances and do some sessions at the radio station. I mean, it really is. It's sort of flattering, but it's a huge amount of work. So I think it was no surprise that we kind of burnt out eventually. Yeah, yeah, sounds exhausting. I was speaking of uh, Tim Carr and Warners, that relates uh, to your last choice, Babes in Toyland. Do you want to talk us through the story of this one? Yeah, so Tim had signed Babes, I think about the same time as us. So Mm. when we got to tour together, um, he was like absolutely delighted. And I I think what's kind of interesting is Babes in Toyland were, I mean, I think Kat was the singer was had actually been very good friends with Courtney Love. Mm. I think at the stage we toured with them, they'd kind of fallen out. um, But you know, there what she had that kind of. I think Kat was saying that Courtney had stolen her look. <laughs> there was that whole, you know, the kind of bleach blonde hair and the baby doll mm. dress, and you know, all of that. So I'm not sure how that uh, it ended up resolving itself. But um, so basically, you know, they they had this very raw kind of um, sound, and she had this persona on stage with this baby doll dress that one minute, you know, it was like a sort of schizophrenic kind of manifestation of one minute kind of quite babyish and cooing and the next minute just bellowing you know
know, now that seems quite odd, like to have these two really different bands on together. But it did strike me that back then, I guess, like early 90s, that people were a bit more open minded, like you could have really, really different bands playing and people liked that. Mm. They didn't want two bands that sounded, you know, like they were exactly the same genre. And I think the unfortunate thing when kind of alternative music became mainstream music is that sort of vanished and people just became very hostile to you know they wanted the grunt they wanted i don't know if you've seen that train wreck um documentary Mm. about 99 yeah oh my god i'm still recovering i mean (laughs) that's the manifestation of that where people are like no We want Rage Against the Machine. We want Corn. We want, you know, Limp Biscuit and anything else. We're going to throw bottles at you and we're not going to tolerate it. And yeah. it wasn't like that back then. You know, people would like be, oh, great, a diff- completely different sounding band. That's exactly what I want. Mm. I think there was a, a period there where, you know, uh, tours and festivals were a bit more like, you know, the running order of a John Peel show uh, unless organized in that way it was about having these very different things but you must have had an incredible shift in your brain going from playing um i mean english venues have a certain je ne sais quoi about them but you know it must be a big difference from a you know a basement in camden with a a load of indie kids sort of moshing around and then suddenly you're out in the wilds of america you know, on this, just the the vistas and the distances involved and going to these places, which, frankly, you couldn't have much of a connection with until you're there. What was that like? What was the the, the sea change in your brain must have been quite immense. You must have thought this is happening now. Do you know, this isn't this isn't just, uh, oh, we've reached Bedford. No, we're we're actually in New Hampshire. You know, we're we're in in New York. My God, what's going on? What was that like for you? I mean, I I think I always really enjoyed touring. I think for me and Chris, probably touring, you know, that was more enjoyable. I think Emma preferred being in the studio. And I Mm. I do think she enjoyed touring, but it would just, after a while, it really ground her down and and it started to piss her off. And, And I think that, you know, I can understand both sides of that because I think the first tours we did, like going out to America with Ride, I mean, literally everything was exciting. Everything. Everything Mm. from a rider to the breakfast menu at Denny's to, (laughs) you know, the the landscape en route from one city to another. Just everything felt fascinating. You know, stopping at just a, a kind of petrol station and buying... I don't know, fridge magnets was exciting. I mean, just... <laughs> so... But it's think, that different, isn't you know, it? It's such a different world, you know? It's... Yeah, exactly. And it, 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 and when you're with, like, a busload of mates and you're playing every night, which has a whole adrenaline rush to it, mm. and you're on some mm. lovely bus where you've got, you know, a bunk and there's, like, a computer game and people are watching films and you can sit and drink and chat. I mean, it's brilliant. You know, what can I say? Mm. But seventh or eighth time when you're playing yeah. the same <laughs> venues <laughs> and you've started to grow really sick of each other, you know, the novelty starts to wear off. Mm. And then, then you know, the fact that it's such a, you know, it's, it's like, oh, my God, we've got to go on tour in America again and it's going to be seven weeks, you know, it does mm. feel like a bit of a life sentence. 
did you did you really um, did you run out of patience with the whole touring thing? Because I think that, that that's something that uh, when we've talked to other people about, especially they can handle the touring and then they handle American touring. I think the distances involved make it such a, a you know a Sisyphean task that you feel like you can never you can never really succeed at it because by the time you've kind of gone from one side to the other, it's time to go back to the other side and remind them who you were in the first place. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I think I always did enjoy touring. It really didn't bother mm. me that much. I mean, I think there were times when I would have quite bad meltdowns, but that was usually my own fault and just getting a bit excessive and out of control. But um, I don't think it 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 kind of ground me down as much because I just really enjoyed playing the shows. I think what ground me down was you know, if you're not, if you feel it's pointless, you know, like I say, I think, I think the atmosphere changed. There was a point where, when we first went, when independent music was, it had its own close scene. It had its mm. own kind of advocates. And by the time we were kind of, it was 1996, it was really like, if you weren't mainstream, you were irrelevant. Mm. And that brought mm. a very different kind of feel to it. It wasn't, you know, I didn't mind playing in Seattle to like, 350 people because they were my people that didn't bother me I didn't need to sell out a stadium but by the end if you weren't selling out a stadium you were a loser Mm -hmm. and you got treated like a loser and I think you know it was more that than anything that really did you know did my head in because you know it's just not fun anymore how was the how was the the come down off of all of that because I think that's something that people don't often think about is like you you have these experiences when you're young and you your your horizons broaden and you go and see all sorts of new places and then you know if you're in a band or or you're making music there comes a time inevitably no matter who you are it's happened to the best of them where you know the next tour maybe isn't going to sell out or maybe it's not quite the record company aren't ready to do this that and the other and then you find yourself kind of back in normal life and what what do you do then how does that how does that leave you how does it make you feel are you talking about during the career or when when the band actually finished well yeah i'm I'm talking about that sort of winding down of, of how you know you, you you lived a life where you you had months and months planned out in front of you you're going to be in this state then you're going to go over there then we're going to go over to wherever uh then the record's going to come out and blah, blah so a lot of your life is kind of on rails and going in a certain direction when that stops and suddenly you're back on your own and you're in charge of deciding what to do next. I mean, that must be quite a trip to come back down to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we ever had a huge amount of excess on tour in that, in the, you know, we were generally on the bus and staying in mm. little motels. We didn't have a kind of luxury lifestyle. And um, I don't think we ever really, you know, we didn't really crave that. You know, it wasn't like the bus was full of groupies or like there was like (laughs) do you know what I mean we didn't have our kind of personal drug dealer or something Mm, I mean I think for a lot of bands there was a certain kind of excess lifestyle lifestyle that they really enjoyed I mean we would literally go sightseeing (laughs) and and shopping what a a wholesome picture you paint well we were quite you know I'm not I mean there was quite a lot of boozing and this that and the other but it just wasn't we weren't that interested in in kind of living some sort of rock and roll lifestyle and so it you know I mean the difficult thing about coming home I think was just um 
you know, trying to sort of reconvene with where everything, you know, what the lay of the land is now. So even, I mean, I always came back and saw my very close friends and I always held on to them. I do know people in bands who just abandoned all their old friends because they made new famous ones. Mm. And actually, Mm. you know, I could see even back then how difficult that is because, you know, you could go away on tour and by the time you've come back, certain bands you were hung out, hanging out with have become massive. Yeah. And now they don't want to yeah. hang out with you anymore because yeah. you're not important enough. Yeah. And yeah. that kind of thing just made me think, mm, this world is not really for me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I retreated more and more away from it, which was the kind of Britpop period, I think. Yeah. Well, in that, you know, you did, um, interestingly, like not very many sort of shoegazy bands. I mean, I hate these terms anyway, but I'm sure you do as much as I do. But, um, you know, not many made it out of that and then got into this whole other thing of Britpop and another form of, of Sardom. But then you did, you stopped for a while and then you came back again in, in the, the 20 teens. Um, what was it that brought you back, really? Did you... Did you feel the pull of it all again? Did you were you actively missing it, or was it again someone just came up and said, "Hey, why don't we why don't we get the band back together?" I mean, I think Emma, Emma and Phil had been talking about it for a while. I mean, Phil stayed in music, so after Lush, he was I think he was in the Mary Chain for a decade. Mm. Um, mm. Emma had done Sing Sing, so you know she'd been in music, and then I think she was working in the music industry. So they were much more finger on the pulse. You know, I got out completely. I become a, became a sub-editor and worked in a totally different environment. I wasn't even online in terms of social media because I think I'd got, I think I'd had a couple of weird people stalking me and I thought, oh, well, I'm staying well away from all that then. So it was really Emma and Phil who were more in touch and they were like, you know, they would suggest it now again, but my children were still small. It felt very disruptive. I'd kind of, you know, Lush got really slagged off and sneered. thought, why would I want to put myself back in the firing line? You know, yeah. I just, I thought, that's crazy. I've made another life and I'm happy with it. But, you know, Emma then sort of was like, look, I think if you look online, you, you'll see that actually people are really fond of Lush. Yeah. I don't think it's what you think it is. And I was quite surprised, you know, that, yeah. shoegaze had become this sort of celebrated genre yeah. yeah and you know and then and then to be honest I had a a, a friend who I, I, I spent about a year thinking about it like really seriously it took me a long time to make my mind up and in the end um I thought all right all right I'll do it I'll do it like I needed to find a few good reasons to do it not the money you know not yeah. like I don't know it, it felt like um, it almost felt like God. I think I buried that whole side of me after Chris died, and just yeah. abandoned it. And maybe there is something still there that I could, you know, may- maybe I, you know, the pain is gone. Maybe yeah. I should, you know, maybe it's a shame to have abandoned all of that completely. Mm. So, yeah, um, I, I think I, you know. It, it's hard for any band to get back together, but after, you know, the the, the tragedy of of Chris committing suicide and um, the upset that that must have brought to everyone's life, you know, that that must make it. 
it must be very strange then ending up doing that thing again without that person beside you because everyone else has those memories propping each other up and then you know it, it's a very poignant thing to look around and, and have someone else sat in that seat I guess yeah and to be honest I think that I spent so much of my like before I agreed to do it thinking exactly that you know thinking how on earth am I going to be able to stand on stage and not get triggered and just yeah. be in like find it the whole thing like a really upsetting experience you know mm. and I think there was quite a lot of fear about that but <clears throat> I think what was quite good about that reunion was that it separated it out for me because actually mm. even when we were just rehearsing for the shows I was, you know, I was doing an office job at the time. And I have to say, like, I was trying to fit in these rehearsals around that. But, you know, I'd be in the rehearsal room for like an hour. And I think, God, this is just great, isn't it? Like, just playing music. <laughs> it's so much fun. And it's so enjoyable. Yeah. And that really, all the worries I had about Chris and the blah, 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 that I thought, well, they're, they're just quite separate things now. Mm. You know, it's... It, I remember Chris for Chris being Chris. It doesn't mean it has to be so... It doesn't mean it has to stop me making music ever again. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so the book is obviously out now. Uh, and, you know, I presume you're kind of on the on the press junket talking about the book. Um, and what's... I mean, what's, what's coming next? Because obviously, you know, when Viv started writing her books, there were two more that came. And, you know, she's not, I mean, is there music coming next for you? Are you going to continue writing? Do you have a plan about what you're going to do next? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean Good. to pile the pressure on there. <laughs> I, 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 I will, I am going to do a bit of music first. I think mm. I need to make another Piroshka record. But in terms of writing, I haven't really, I'm sort of, I'm being encouraged to think about it. That's mm, about yeah. as near yeah. as I can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm sort of waiting to see what the response is. Maybe you know, yeah. I'm not that confident a person. You know, I the whole time I was doing this book, I kept sort of wailing at my agent and the publisher, going, <laughs> "I'm not a writer." You know, I don't know what I'm doing, and they were like, "You are a writer. Stop saying that." <laughs> do you do you feel like a writer now that it's finished and now that you you're sort of um, having these conversations with people about it, do you feel like a writer now or do you still feel like you're just pretending? I do feel still like an imposter. <laughs> yeah, especially when I get you're interviewed. Not, you're not. Let us tell but you Especially no, when not. I get interviewed by people who are journalists and I think, no, you're a writer. You do that for a living. I've literally just had a go. Like, But isn't that the thing that most people struggle with? I mean, most people have a book in them. It's just a question of getting it out. Like That's the the difficult thing. And you've done such a beautiful job. Do you know what I do say? Because I I think that if everyone got offered um, the chance, I think writing it on your own, you know, is a really hard thing. But I think if everyone had a publisher approach them and say, look, we'll really, we'll guide you through this, Mm -hmm. right? you know, just do it and we'll give you a bit of money to do it. I think most people would actually find that they, they could do it. You're playing, you know you're, I, mean? I really, you, you need to give yourself more. I'm just, I literally, as you were describing that situation, my levels of anxiety were just rising and rising. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I'm not sure you're right there. But uh, Okay. But yeah, 
it's, uh, it's well a... i'm very much looking forward to getting into it and uh, i really hope you do make a lot more music as well because you've made some beautiful beautiful pieces in the past that certainly meant a lot to me and a lot of a lot to many people around the world so i'd like to say thank you very much for coming on the show today and sharing your phonographic memories with thank us you, Mickey. thank you I really hope you liked this podcast and Eamon really hopes that you liked it too. And if you did indeed like it, why don't you like it on whatever platform you're listening to it on? Like, subscribe so that you always catch the next episode into your inbox. And if you really, really like it, uh, why don't you up your uh, credibility by recommending it to a friend? I'm sure your friend would love to hear the podcast too. Share it around, share the love. That's really all we ask from you. Uh, is just to, to share it with someone you think you might who might like it. <laughs>